Dear Father, we thank you for everything that you've done, for all that you have done has been good. Help us to remember that. Help us to understand that when things look otherwise, when the devil would eclipse our view of Christ. We pray that you'll be with us now. We ask for your blessing and your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. If we could have the projectors on, you know, I, I, I will confess right at the beginning here that one of the hardest pieces of wisdom that the spirit of prophecy has imparted, one of the hardest ones for me to abide by is the caution to not try to put everything into one sermon. <laughs> <laughs> And I have tried, but I know there's a lot, so I'm going to go quickly today. <laughs> this is actually one that I didn't get in last yesterday. Remember, we were talking about the substitute and the surety and the whole concept that we're in a war. What a wonderful statement. Look at this thing here. Every eye in the unfallen universe is bent upon those who profess to be Christ's followers. That's us. Here in this atom of a world, an earnest warfare is going on, a battle in which Christ, our substitute and surety, has engaged in our behalf and conquered. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah to Jesus. Okay. He engaged in our behalf and conquered. Now we, Christ's Purchased possession must become soldiers of his cross and conquer in our own behalf, on our own account, through the power and wisdom given us from above. The influence of the cross of Calvary is to vanquish every earthly and spiritual evil power, and we need to know the plan of the battle, that we may work in harmony with Christ. we got to get on the same page here. <laughs> we got to figure out what's going on. Or we'll be, at best, innocent bystanders and more likely, what is that? Collateral damage. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't want to do that. Okay. That was, should have been in yesterday's. Let's go on today. Now, Remember we start off with Lucifer, Lucifer's rebellion. And then we spoke of Christ's response, which was a refutation of the accusations of Lucifer. I'm building a historical model here, which you haven't seen all of yet, and I don't intend you to see all of just yet. But we're going to make a jump, which may seem to you to be somewhat, eh? <laughs> why do you do that type of thing? But we're going to jump to the story of Dr. Kellogg, and specifically, a particular span of his life. This is the span that I colloquially refer to as the good Kellogg. Unfortunately, there's also a bad one. Before the good one, there was the unconverted Kellogg. But he wasn't, that's, that was bad, but that wasn't bad, bad, okay? So he went from unconverted to good to bad. 
So we'll be looking at the good Kellogg, and the key thought today is lend to the Lord. Lend to the Lord. Well, okay. In all of Seventh-day Adventist history, there is no one who is more colorful, shall I say, than Dr. Kellogg. Okay? Now, Ellen White stands in a unique position, of course, as having been the servant of the Lord, the, the messenger of the Lord. But once you move past that unique position, there is nobody in, in all of Adventist history that is half as interesting as Dr. Kellogg. Okay? This guy was amazing. And intelligent and dedicated. He had many, many good qualities. Um, I could tell you stories about this guy. Um, tell you one, because I won't have time to get them all in, but I'll tell you one. Every morning, Dr. Kellogg would get up crack of dawn, sometimes before, and he'd go out, and in front of his house, there was a large uh, cobblestone paved circular area. And he'd get up, and get dressed, take a cold rub down probably, I don't remember exactly his schedule, but anyhow, and he'd run outside, and he'd jump on his bicycle, and he would pedal furiously, round and round in circles to get his exercise. Now you might say, why did he do that? Why not just ride five miles down the road and five miles back? There was a reason to this guy's madness. In the middle of that circle was a stenographer taking dictation the whole time. Kellogg wrote something like 50 books, I think it was 54, something like that, in his lifetime. Several of them are well in excess of 1,000 pages. When Kellogg dictated a book, by and large, he just went to the press with it. He would dictate all the commas, all the semicolons. How many of you actually know how to use a semicolon? You know? that's, that's, that is like the coolest thing you can do, the simplest thing you can do to make your writing look intelligent, is figure out how to use a semicolon properly. Okay? <laughs> I'll just give you a hot tip there. If you want to impress an editor, figure out what to do with a semicolon someday. Okay? <laughs> so, but Kellogg would dictate this stuff, and it was ready for the press. The guy was, the guy was amazing. We're going to see that because God had special plans for John Kellogg. He had special plans for the Adventist church. He had special plans for the plan of salvation through John Kellogg. Let's look at some of the possibilities. Dr. Kellogg has done a work that no man I know of among us has had qualifications to do. He wasn't just like everybody else. My dear brother, as I have before written you, I know that the Lord has placed you in a very responsible position, standing as you do as the greatest physician in our world. Wow. <laughs> okay. Now, the AMA agrees. Uh, they didn't agree with Kellogg on everything, but in their histories, they will chalk him up as being the single most influential physician of, of the Western world for a period of about 40, 50 years. He changed medicine. God says of Dr. Kellogg, he is my physician. Respect him and sustain him. 
Dr. Kellogg, with earnest, untiring energy, has testified by his works that he believes the Word of God and that he is not content to be merely a theoretical believer. Notice that. Theory's great. Don't stop there. He is not content to be merely a theoretical believer. He has put his belief into works. He has faith and works combined. His work in the medical missionary line has had the appearance of being disproportionately large. But he has seen the feeble efforts made by the churches, whose practice has not been proportionate to light, and he has undertaken to educate his students to do service for the Lord. In this, he has only tried to walk in the light. He has been doing the very work the Lord has specified should be done. Now, this was 1897. A couple of years later, the medical missionary work employed more people than the church did. Disproportionately large. Was it disproportionately large? Yes, it was. Because everything else was disproportionately small. That became an issue in different ways, but we'll talk about that later. We're looking at the good stuff right now. This is not a fanatical and superstitious work. It is the work that Christ did when he was in our world. Talking about Kellogg's activities. Dr. Kellogg has not betrayed his trust. The Lord has wrought with him in surgical operations, giving him wisdom and success. Men not of our faith feel that although Dr. Kellogg is a Seventh-day Adventist, which, you know, is a little weird to them, yet he has wisdom and knowledge and a wide influence. They feel it would be the height of folly to ignore this. Kellogg was a respected guy. And a piece of advice to those who tended not to, you need to practice health reform just as conscientiously as does Dr. Kellogg. A lot of people wrote him off. He's a little bit mm, eccentric, shall we say. Okay? He's a, maybe a little fanatical. Yeah. I would actually agree with both those statements. But you know what? The church was so far behind him that Ellen White didn't worry about trying to correct the, the, the little details. You know, you need to practice the health reform just as conscientious as Dr. Kellogg. It doesn't necessarily say that everything that Kellogg believed was something that you needed to believe, but the man was conscientious. We ought to be too. Well, let's see. How did he, uh, how did he, how did he, how did he gain this skill, this ability, this influence, okay? Well, there's an interesting insight into that. About 1891, Dr. Kellogg was talking to Dr. David Paulson, and he asked him, he says, Dr. Paulson, do you know how it is that I always stay five years ahead of the medical profession? And Paulson said, no, nobody knows how you do that. They all wonder. He said, when a new thing is brought out in the medical world, he knew from his knowledge of the spirit of prophecy whether it belonged in our system or not. If it did, he instantly adopted it and advertised it. Well, the rest of the doctors were slowly feeling their way and when they finally adopted it, he had five years to start of them. On the other hand, when the medical profession were swept off their feet by some new fad, if it did not fit the light we'd received, he simply didn't touch it. When the doctors finally discovered their mistake, they wondered how Dr. Kellogg did not get caught. Kellogg, for many years, had the reputation of being the single most... Um, enthusiastic advocate of Ellen White in Battle Creek. She was gone 
during most of these years that we're talking about. She was in Australia from 1891 to 1900. And during that time period, it was a rough, rough, rough decade for the Adventist church. That was the time, 1896, Ellen White's writing things like, who can now respect the voice of the General Conference as the voice of God? You know, there were serious problems going on. Kellogg was in the middle of all the politics. Much of it was aimed against him, unfortunately. It was a tough time period, and Kellogg had this reputation as one who had great respect for the work and the writings of Ellen White. Now, it was easy for him at that point to have great respect for the work and writings of Ellen White because she was saying so much in support of him, because he was doing the right thing, and so she would support him. As George Butler once said, it's never hard to believe the spirit of prophecy when it supports you. <laughs> it's always a bit more challenging when it corrects you. <laughs> Kellogg ran into that problem later, but we're talking about the good stuff right now. Dr. Kellogg's success rose and fell with his respect for the instructions from the spirit of prophecy. Let's go back to what was one of his greatest early successes. If Dr. Kellogg will trust himself wholly with God, he, capital H, will give him tact and perception and skill as a practitioner that has seldom been excelled. Angels of God will stand by his side when human life is in peril, and wisdom from above will be given him. God designs that Dr. Kellogg shall still advance. He has only begun to climb the ladder. The Lord will give him grace that he is now ignorant of, and he will see as he has never seen before. He will realize that there is to be an intelligent discarding of all drugs. Skill and knowledge is to be given him, which he is in no case to keep to himself. He is to educate, educate, educate. Now, I, I, I think this is a key statement, statement and it, it touches on some of the things that Brother Lemon was sharing with us. Notice that discarding of all drugs. Kellogg was to realize that there is to be an intelligent discarding of all drugs. What's an intelligent time to discard a drug? Doctors? What's that? When you have a better choice. I mean, yeah, if you have a better choice, take, well, you take your best choice. If you have no other choice, there are times you might be stuck. I had an elderly friend once upon a time. Her cousin was the son of missionaries in Africa. And I think he, third selective messages maybe, I think he can read the story. The missionaries were in Africa, and the little boy came down with malaria. And they had read about the evils of drugs and of quinine in particular. And they did not give him quinine. And he died. And the father wrote to Ellen White and said, did we make a mistake? And she wrote back compassionately, with no fault-finding. And she said, it would have been best to give him quinine. 
You must do the best you can. Now, quinine's terrible. <laughs> quinine's deadly poison. If you get it just exactly right, you can kill off the bugs before you kill off the person. If you go a little too much, they both die. Now, I'm not advocating for drugs. I'm advocating for an intelligent discarding of drugs. And I'm telling you, Dr. Kellogg was the chosen messenger of that message. Has there been another one since? Well, I think Dr. Thrash did a lot of work that direction, you know? Okay. But in the day, and there are others, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not discounting any others, I, several that I could think of that I, you know, have high respect for. But I'm, I'm trying to paint you a picture here that Kellogg was intended of the Lord to accomplish some great things, okay? Skill and knowledge was to be given him. He was to educate, educate, educate. The rest of us were supposed to learn something from this guy. And when the Lord's cause lost Kellogg, I don't know that there was an immediate equivalent replacement. You know, sometimes you lose a tool, you don't have a quarter-inch socket wrench. What are you going to do without a quarter-inch soccer wrench? You're going to suffer, <laughs> okay? You know, that's, you got, that's what you need. Anyhow, <clears throat> okay. This process that the Lord intended to accomplish with Dr. Kellogg was never completed through Dr. Kellogg. I believe it will be completed. I trust that we've made progress in the years since. But I do think it's important for us to understand that we are in a process we can sometimes get the idea that we have attained all that God has called us to do. And therefore, we should function in certain ways. And you know what? It, it, that doesn't work. Your son will die of malaria in that particular case. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a tough one to wrestle with. I'm not giving you the final answer on anything, but I'm giving you an aspect I think needs to be considered as we move forward in the Lord's work. Okay, well, let's go on. <clears throat> now we've got the background out of the way a little bit. We can um, sort of get started here. <laughs> October 10 to November 5, 1888. There was a ministerial institute, lasted for 10 days, and then the general conference session was held at Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is the famous 1888 General Conference, Jones, Wagner, Law and Galatians, Ten Horns, Righteousness by Faith, all that stuff, okay? There's one aspect of it that is often overlooked. After the meeting at Minneapolis, Dr. Kellogg was a converted man, and we all knew it. We could see the converting power of God working in his heart and life. Now this, when I first read that, that just kind of like, Whoa, that's interesting. And, you know, being the sort of, I don't know, I just, I, I'll frankly admit I have a weird way of looking at life sometimes, but the very first thing that popped into my mind is, wow, how could they see he was converted? What was he doing different? Did he stop going to the bar on Friday nights? No, he did not stop going to the bar on Friday nights. He never had gone to the bar on Friday nights. Is 1888. He'd been the medical director of the sanitarium for 12 years already. He was a pillar of the church. He was, well, I don't know, probably an elder or something. I don't, I don't know that. He'd been an Adventist since he was in his teenage years. 
But somehow, after he was converted, everybody knew it and they could see it. So my question is, what were they seeing? What was different? Skipping over a ton of interesting details from the story of Dr. Kellogg, I'm going to oversimplify, I'll confess, but what was different is he started being nice to people. <laughs> okay? Now, Dr. Kellogg was not a normal mortal. <laughs> he was mortal. But he, he, he just did everything on a scale that, that I don't ever approach. Let's put it that way. And so when he said, I think I'll be nice to people, instead of, you know, like helping a little lady across the street or something you know, that, that I might think of doing, you know, he says, let's start an orphanage. <laughs> he had a little bigger realm of reference than I do, okay? Um, we'll get to that in just a second. This being nice to people thing, how's that fit into the whole picture? Well, it's actually what converted people do. When the believer is justified, remember this was 1888, right? Justification by faith, that whole thing, right? When the believer is justified because of the merit of Christ, he is not free to work on righteousness. Cheap grace type of a thing, right? Faith works by love and purifies the soul. Faith buds and blossoms and bears a harvest of precious fruit. Where faith is, good works, notice those two words, good works appear. The sick are visited. The poor are cared for. The fatherless and the widows are not neglected. The naked are clothed. The destitute are fed. That's what converted people do. Now, we may not all do it on the level and the scale that Kellogg did. But that's the difference between someone who's converted and someone's not, is they start being nice to people. I like that. It's simple. I can wrap my brain around that much. Simplicity is good for some of us weak-minded folks. <laughs> not only was he nice to people, he began to enjoy it so much that he actually welcomed the self-sacrifice that made it possible for him to be nice. We'll talk about that in a second. In the summer of 1890, uh, Dr. Kellogg and Ellen White both happened to be in Potosky, Potosky, I don't know how it's pronounced, Michigan. And he approached her and he said, uh, Sister White, you know, I've been, I've been reading the, re the, the obituary columns in the review. I went back over the last four years. And according to my count, we have a lot of orphans. Just, just from reading all the folks that died, you know, in the obituary columns. It was harder to keep membership up back in the day because, you know, people died earlier. <laughs> and so he says, uh, just reading the obituary columns, we've got a lot of orphans that aren't being cared, cared for. I've found some of them are just living on the street. I've found some that are being caring for, cared for by non-Adventist relatives. I've found some who are in county poorhouses. I even found a few who are in Catholic orphanages. I don't, I don't think that should be. I think we need an orphanage. What do you think? Is that, is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? And Ellen White said, it's an excellent idea. We are years behind on works of this kind. <clears throat> Not going to go into it at this point, but it's interesting, and I have been 
misled to a degree, at, you know, in my own mind at times, in this way. Ellen White wrote a letter talking about this interview with Dr. Kellogg, and she mentioned that she said, yes, the orphanage was a wonderful idea. We are years behind, and we should do something like that. The letter turns out to have been, oh, I think I got the number right. It's, it's, I think it's 2,945 <laughs> words. It's a pretty good letter. The comment about the orphanage was the first two sentences, 45 words. 2,900 other words in that same letter portraying the dangers that Kellogg would face in the, in the coming years. And you know what? I myself, for a time, I focused on the 45 words. <laughs> I didn't see the rest. I just honestly didn't. I was so fascinated by those 45 words that I didn't see the rest. Kellogg had the same problem. Well, anyhow, nonetheless, she said the orphanage was a good idea. And so that was the summer of 1890. The first general conference after that was in February of 1891. So Dr. Kellogg knew his parliamentary procedure business. And he said, Mr. Chairman, I make a motion that we establish an orphanage to care for <coughs> orphans, I guess. Here in Battle Creek, and they got it second, they debated it, it was passed, they had another motion, they formed a committee, they said, okay, you guys, uh, nine people here, you're the committee to make this orphanage thing go, you need, to, you need to run the orphanage, get it going, you can solicit funds in the pages of the Review and Herald, and uh, go for it. Now, it's, it's, you know, there are fine details, no doubt, but, but the basics of starting an orphanage are, it's not rocket science, you know, you got to raise some money, you buy some property, you build a building, you hire some people, you bring in the kids, you know what uh, once you bring in the kids, then there's you know, other details that develop. But, but up to that point, it's, it's, it's fairly straightforward. And so this committee, Kellogg was one and several, you know, about eight others, I think, uh, they set about trying to raise funds, because that was the first step. And you know how you do it. I mean, actually, they were, they were not so bashful back in the day. We have, you know, our skin is so thin today, it's just pathetic, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> Both good and bad. They, they just, just lay things out there. And so they would have this you know, uh, fundraising for Battle Creek Orphanage thing and showed up on the back page of the review for every week for a year, and it listed everybody and how much they gave. None of this anonymity nonsense. Okay. <laughs> so Ellen White gave $500. Dr. Kellogg gave $500, $1,000. I forget which it was. You know, and, uh, somebody, you know, uh, Jane Loughborough gave some money, and uh, I don't remember who they were, but you know, yeah, you know how you do it? You get, the, you get the movers and shakers, the people that everybody else has confidence in. You get their donations up there, and everybody's like, oh, well, you know, all the important people are doing it. must be a cool thing to do. I'll give some money, too. You know, that's how it works. It didn't work. After a year's time, they had barely enough money to buy some property. Not a dime to build. And this was getting to be a problem. <clears throat> I'm ahead of myself. Hang on to that thought. I want to squeeze in a couple of other ideas that I, I jumped over in my, my mind here. More on, back on the natural result of, of being converted, right? Faith in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, the one who pardons our sins and transgressions, the one who is able to keep us from sin and lead us in his footsteps, is set forth in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. I think Dr. McNulty said something about that this morning. Here are presented the fruits of a faith that works by love and purifies the soul from selfishness. Faith and works are here combined. Thy righteousness shall go before thee, it says in Isaiah 58. What does this mean? It means that Christ is our righteousness. There is a strong connection between 
1888, Righteousness by Faith, Kellogg's Conversion, and Isaiah 58. These things all kind of go together, okay? Well, <clears throat> let's go on. At that General Conference of 1891, I'm going to hide that. I don't want you to read that yet. At the General Conference of 1891, Kellogg, along with making the or motion for the orphanage, said some other things. I think, I think they deserve our consideration here. Notice this. I have given quite a good deal of thought and study to this subject. My wife and I have given considerable attention to this work for a number of years. We have been planning to raise 40 or 50 children ourselves. Just as fast as we get any money, we will invest it in children. I have done that for several years. Every single dollar that can be saved from other necess necessary expenses goes into the education of children. One more comment. I do not believe we have any right to accumulate money. I think as, as long as we are well and have God's blessing upon our work, it is our duty to spend what we earn in God's work. I do not believe that in this age, any man has a right to accumulate money. Uh, that's a, that's a, uh, an interesting perspective. What does that say about retirement? We'll come back to that as their story unfolds. Well, was Kellogg really serious about this stuff, or was he just kind of, you know, I mean, some people will just get up and say crazy things. Well, I don't know a lot about his bank account. I do know he was very generous. He paid for about 50 students to go through med school over the course of his career. He and his wife did raise 42 children, so he was within the margin of error there. He said 40 to 50. Um, they adopted 18, uh, and what's, however, however many are left were foster children, we might call them today. So he was reasonably serious on at least some of what he said, let's put it that way. This, this whole thing about not accumulating money, that, that kind of intrigues me, both good and bad. <laughs> And then I, I ran into a, a train of statements that kind of fascinated me. You may be familiar with the first one. Um, hello, there we go. In the last great conflict of the controversy with Satan, those who are loyal to God will see every earthly support cut off. You know, I used to read that statement, and it, and it was like, yeah, that's going to be kind of tough. Oh, obviously, what's she talking about? Well, can't buy or sell, right? Uh, no earthly support from law enforcement. I mean, once they pass a death decree, what, you know, <laughs> they're not going to support you much. Okay, you know? Um, so, yeah, yeah, and I looked at that, and I said, man, what a terrible ordeal. I wonder if anyone will really have the faith to deal with that. And then I ran into a second statement. It is safe to let go every earthly support and take the hand of him who lifted up and saved the sinking disciple on the stormy sea. And you know that, that little expression there, earthly support, that kind of caught my attention. Wow, that reminded me of the first one about how we would have every earthly support cut off. 
And so I just kind of on random, I did a search for the expression every earthly support, or maybe it was just earthly support, I don't remember. Found one more statement. We can never perfect a round, full Christian experience until every earthly support is removed and the soul centers its entire affections about God. And as usual, I found out that I'd been looking at everything exactly backwards. This great trial that I was worried about is the goal. That's exactly where we're supposed to be going. The decree that you can't buy and sell is a gift. The wrath of Satan shall serve the Lord, and finally his people will come to the position where they can perfect full round Christian experience because now every support's cut off and they can find out what they should have been doing all along. Yeah, you know, I, I, I routinely get my ideas stood on their head here, but you know. Well, anyhow, so Kellogg was trying to raise money, and, and, and a year had gone by, and they, like I said, they, did, they bought some property, but it was blank empty lot or something, I don't, and they had no money to raise funds. The church just did not seem to have a lot of enthusiasm for orphans. With one exception. There was one group in the church that, that was enthusiastic about the orphanage. And that was the folks who were caring for orphans that they really didn't want. And so they began to show up in the Battle Creek train station by themselves, a little note pinned on their shirt, Bobby, age four, orphanage, Battle Creek. Some of them were younger than four. By, um, say, March of 1892, Dr. Kellogg had about 20 of these little kids that had shown up that way. Oh, you're going to do with 20 kids. You don't have an orphanage yet. So he went out behind the sanitarium. He, he rented a couple of small cottages out that direction, and he kept kind of informally going in and stealing nurses. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I need you out here. <laughs> I got 20 kids screaming. It was not a good situation. Dr. Kellogg was getting nervous and frantic. He began to pray. As he said, I prayed very hard. I told the Lord that I needed a lot of money and I needed it very quickly. A lot of people, frankly, I suspect, at that point, were just kind of hoping the whole issue would go away. I don't know what you can do with the 20 kids now, but, you know, the orphanage thing, we were never that, very excited about it. You don't have the money for it. Just drop it, dude. You know, come on, let's move on. We got, we got other more important things to do. Kellogg began to pray. Because he had a problem on his hands. He had 20-some problems on his hands. <clears throat> the Lord answered his prayer. And in the late spring of 1892, a Mrs. Carolyn Haskell gave a donation to help with the orphanage work. It was the largest single donation that the denomination had ever received up to that point. It was $30,000. Now, yeah, we all understand that inflation changes the value of money over time. If you want to try and, you know, just kind of get a graphic depiction of how that has changed since 19 or 1892, just bear in mind that the building 
was built with Mrs. Haskell's donation of $30,000 and not a dime of Adventist money because Mrs. Haskell was not an Adventist. And this is what they built. Try building that for 30 grand. I don't think you could buy the doorknobs. <laughs> I don't know. You might get the doorknobs. You couldn't buy the windows. <laughs> I don't think. There's a lot of windows in that place. I don't think you could buy the windows for 30 I don't know. Somebody's probably a building contractor. They'd have a better uh, estimate than I. But it was an impressive structure. It had, uh, could house about 100, uh, 100 to 110 orphans. It was sociologically way ahead of its day. It wasn't just one big cavernous expanse inside with little kids bouncing off the walls all over the place. It was carved up into, I think it was 11 separate housing units. And you had house parents. And you'd have a six-month-old and a one-year-old and a three-year-old and a four-year-old and a six-year-old and a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old. And they made families. And they functioned as families. It was a good thing. <clears throat> and it was, as I say, funded by Mrs. Haskell. It was as a memorial gift to her husband. He had died a year and a half or two before, left her a fair chunk of change. She wanted to do something in his memory. He, he'd always liked kids. She thought this would be a nice thing to do. The Haskells were um, Presbyterian, I believe. I think it was. No relation to Stephen Haskell whatsoever. No connection to Adventism other than Mrs. Haskell came to Battle Creek to visit a friend who was in the sanitarium. Saw what was going on, says, I, I kind of like what you guys are doing. Is there anything you can do, I, could, I could do to help you out? It was funny, actually. She says, doctors, anything, anything you could use a little financial help on? And he, first of all, he mentioned a, what they called an endowed bed, which was basically a, a, a hospital bed for the use of, of poor folks who didn't have any money. It ran about $100 a year, so we gave her a nice discussion on that, and she listened politely, and she says, I was thinking of something rather larger than that. And that's when he switched over to the orphanage idea. <clears throat> she had started off thinking about ten or 15000 but as they looked at the plans that Kellogg was drawing up, she says, you can't build that for 15000 can you? He says, no, I don't think I can. So what about 20000 No, I don't think that would do it. Well, how much would it take? It would be about 30000 She says, that's what I'll give you then. Kellogg was doing other things during this time period as well. <clears throat> in 1892, there was a 17-year-old young lady who came to the Battle Creek Sanitarium, spent six weeks there, received excellent care. But she had some sort of a condition, I don't know what it was, that required an operation. Why anyone would go to anyone other than Dr. Kellogg for an operation, I have no idea. But she returned to her home in Chicago, and perhaps there was a specialist, maybe somebody who you know, pioneered this particular surgical procedure. I don't know what it was. She went back to Chicago for her operation. It was a very critical operation, and it was unsuccessful. When she was sewn back up and came out from anesthesia, they all knew she was going to die. In her last days, she pled with her father. She said, Daddy... There are no nurses anywhere like those nurses in Battle Creek. I want you to do something for me. As a memorial to me, I want you to pay to bring one of those nurses down to Chicago to work for the poor. Will you do that, Daddy? He said yes. The young lady died. The man wrote a letter to Dr. Kellogg. Kellogg was busy. He ignored the letter. The man wrote a second letter. Kellogg was still busy. He ignored that letter, too. The man wrote a third letter. Dr. Kellogg was a busy guy. He... Didn't, he, had, he was working in Battle Creek. 
He ignored that letter too. Then the, the businessman down in Chicago got smart, or lucky, I don't know which. He had his wife write a letter. Kellogg had a soft spot for brothers. Okay, got to do it. So he marched over to the sanitarium and he found Emily Schranz. I don't know that this is Emily. I like to pretend it is. She's clearly one of the visiting nurses. Emily was the first. She was one of the best nurses. Is Emily, would you be willing to go down and work in Chicago? She prayed about it and said, yes, I would. She went down. She was the first one. The program expanded after that. Most of the nurses in, in the uh, sanitarium, they would uh, make a weekly contribution so that every month they had enough money to sponsor a second nurse to go down and work. The, the businessman was sponsoring one nurse, and they would sponsor the second one, and they rotated around, you know, and say, okay, it's my month to go to Chicago, and you guys all contribute, you know, some of your money. The visiting nurses did a wonderful job, wonderful work down in Chicago. They, they were primarily working in an area that was known as the brewery because of the prevailing diet. Uh, the alternative name for the place was Hell's Half Acre. Many people objected to the name as being inaccurate because it was obviously larger than half an acre. Um, it, was a, it was a tough part of town. The police would not go there. The police stopped the nurses many times as they were walking into the district. They said, ma'am, you don't want to go there. You need to turn around. And they would point to the little cross on their uniform and say, I'll be fine, officer. Thank you for your concern. Great stories coming out, of, coming out of the visiting nurses program. Kellogg loved it. He loved good stories. He loved excitement. He, loved, he was a go-get-em kind of a guy. Once upon a time, the, uh, as the work had developed a little bit further, there was a gentleman who had received um, some assistance from the medical workers in Battle Creek. I, I say gentleman, maybe a little overly generous. He was a notorious crook and uh, a murderer. But um, he had received, uh, he received some assistance, and he appreciated that. And he was sitting in a bar one night getting drunk, about 10 o'clock at night, when one of the nurses was finally done with her patient and was on her way back home. As she was walking down the street, she was uh, assaulted by three individuals, slapped a hand over her mouth, just grabbed her, held her tight, picked her up, carried her into the bar, going through the bar into back into the back section of the rooming house, the obvious probability was that she would be raped and murdered. As they were walking through, all of a sudden there were two very loud, audible clicks of revolvers. And the gentleman who all the patrons of the bar knew was a murderer said very loudly, unhand that woman or I will shoot you all dead. He remembered the kindness that had been shown to him some time before, and the young lady was released. Uh, on another occasion, one of the, uh, one of the nurses had a, 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 a call to make on the sixth floor of a tenement building. Going up the stairs, this is pre-elevators, certainly in tenement buildings. She's going up the stairs. There was a kind of a landing, uh, kind of a lobby landing type of thing on the fourth floor of this particular tenement building, and as she emerged from the stairwell into that area, there, were, there was about a six-way knife fight that was going on at the time. But when they saw who it was, it was all boop. <laughs> and they let her walk on through, and she went on up, and they went ahead with their knife fight. She dealt with the patient upstairs. When she came back down, she patched up several folks who were bleeding on the carpet there, and 
went her way. This was, this was a rough neighborhood. But these nurses were loved in that neighborhood. Kellogg also started the Christian Help Bands. Of all the things that Kellogg started, this is the only one that I, to the best of my knowledge, Ellen White never reproved, cautioned, rebuked, or anything of the sort. The Christian Help Bands was, was dirt simple. <laughs> it was a small band of Christians who tried to help people. Didn't take a lot of formal training. Formal training's good. Even in the health bands, they had one leader, they had two mother's helpers, generally middle-aged ladies who went door-to-door, knocking on the door, is everybody okay here? You know? Are you staying warm? You have good clothes for your kids? It's wintertime in Chicago, it's cold stuff, you know. Uh, have enough food, anybody sick, any way we can help? That was their job. You had three young gentlemen known as burden bearers. High levels of intelligence probably not required, but you need to be able to pack stuff around for us. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, we, we guys, we can find something to do usually. Um, then there were two nurses and a Bible worker. And they would be assigned a certain section of blocks of town, and it was their job to try and help people in that town, in that, that section of town. Within a few months, uh, the first one of these was started in, in the fall of 1892. It's an interesting story. We won't be tracing it, but A.W. Simmons, an Australian guy, was the leader of Christian Help Band Number 1. He later went back to Australia and assisted Ellen White working in the medical work in, in Australia for a number of years. Within six months, the example of Christian Help Band Number 1 had proved so contagious that there were 16, I believe it was, yeah, 16 Christian Help Bands just in Battle Creek all coming from the employees of the sanitarium. The church was not taking part in any notable extent. That's 144 people who are spending something like three to five hours a week just helping people around town. Yeah, that's going to make an influence after a while. Anyhow, that all happened in 1892. The orphanage, the visiting nurses, the Christian help bands all happened in 1892, and there was one other important thing that happened in 1892. November 22, 1892, Ellen White wrote a comment. Actually, she wrote it sometime before, but it appeared in the review that date. It said, the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ. Two months later, a little over two months later, was a general conference session. In the 1893 general conference, it um, went from January on th- all the way through February into March. A long, long deal. Ministerial Institute first, right? Same thing. Elder A.G. Jones presented a 24-part series of studies on the third angel's message and went from start to finish throughout that whole time period. It's an, it's an excellent series. It's been reprinted at least three times. You can still buy copies readily today, and, and it's, it's got a lot of merit to it. It's been very heavily studied because 1893 is commonly considered the high-water mark of the 1888 influence, okay? From 88 coming up, you know, but that that general conference session of 1893 is generally considered where that particular kind of uh, occasion or or influence reached its peak. It didn't disappear overnight. It continued. Jones gave another series in 1895, but, you know, it just didn't have as much impact. So 93 has has been very heavily studied. Um, Something else happened that has not been heavily studied. Dr. Kellogg presented a series of eight talks on medical missionary work. 
at the General Conference of 1893. Now, if you wanted to find out what Dr. Kellogg said at a general conference, you would normally go looking in the General Conference Bulletin, which is the official record of the activities and speeches and such things given at a general conference. Don't bother. Nothing that Kellogg said shows up in the 1893 General Conference Bulletin. Instead, it turns out, if you wanted to know what he said, you would have to track down this publication. Hello. It'd be better if my slide would advance. There we go. The Medical Missionary, March 1893. Notice at the top, extra number one. Oh, man, it's a long story I could tell you about this. Uh, the Lord worked a miracle that dropped that one in my laps. It's stretched out over a 28-year time period, starting with me hitchhiking from halfway across the country, and then materials that were, were transferred from Leah Schmidtke to... Dr. Charles Thomas to Dr. Thomas's widow to a guy by the name of George Vigneron and finally came into my hands. And in there, I found the medical missionary, extra number one of 1893. And for the first time, I was able to read what Dr. Kellogg had said that I had never known that he had said a thing in 1893. Uh, you know, I'm going to have to skip that. Um, I'm going to skip that too. Nobody knew about it. This, I'll say this here. Uh, this is Willie White writing 15 years later. He says, the beginnings of Christian help work under this name date from about the year 1893, although the printed addresses of the 1893 General Conference include no talk by Dr. Kellogg on this phase of gospel work. Evidently, there was something said for the 62nd resolution of the 1893 conference reads as follows and said something about Christian help work. Willie didn't even know that, that Kellogg had spoke in 1893. He was in Australia, of course, so that's easy to understand. Why did they not report what he had said? They gave an, there, there is an official excuse given. The excuse makes no sense. It's, it's obviously a fabrication, okay? I, I don't have time to go through that because I'm running out here, but you know. <clears throat> I'm going to guess, this is my guess, I'm going to guess that he was boycotted, if you wish, or edited out of, you know, um, what did they used to say in... in, in he was disappeared. There you go in Russia, you know. That, and then you see those pictures of Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin, and then you see the same picture and Trotsky's gone, right? They disappeared him. Okay. Kellogg was disappeared from 1893 because of some things that he had perhaps unwisely said two years before in 1891. This is my guess. I think he stepped on enough toes in 1891 that somebody just says, you know, I, <laughs> I'm not going to let him do that again. What had he said before? Well, what he said before was right but not necessarily wise. He was telling about the history of medical missionary work, and he says the backward movement, he says, uh, not medical missionary, but the health, the health message, health reform. When health reform came in in 1863-1865, it was well received by the Adventist church, but during the 1870s, it kind of declined. New ministers came in and weren't so familiar with it, a younger crop. Other things came up that distracted their attention, and health reform began to decline quite notably by the mid-1870s. <clears throat> and Kellogg's telling that story. He says, the backward movement continued, however, until it seemed almost like a stampede. Men and women who had for years testified to the great benefits received from the adoption of health principles suddenly discovered the health reform did not agree with them. Two meals a day were insufficient to support a working man, especially brain workers who need more nourishment than those who only use their muscles. The people all of a sudden found that good beefsteak was necessary for good health, that good cheese was essential to good digestion, and a cup of strong tea now and then to relieve a sick headache, not particularly objectionable and, and possibly of service as a preventative. 
Now, I think I may have a headache this afternoon. I'm going to try and head that off with a cup of tea now. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <coughs> the provision stands and boarding tents at camp meetings cease to be object lessons for our people and those not of our faith in healthful dietetics. The camp meeting provision stand the last decade has rarely failed to include in its stock a good supply of lard crackers, ginger snaps, baker spice, and cakes of various sorts, dried beef, smoked halibut, salt codfish, smoked herring, painted candies, and unwholesome knickknacks of various sorts, and a good supply of cheese ripe enough to be buried and lively enough to move on if not kept in a cage. And in the background might usually be seen arranged in a picturesque manner sundry coils of sausage warranted, however, to be bologna, as I have frequently been told, which is a guarantee that the article is not Simon pure swine's flesh, but a miscellaneous assortment of all manner of beasts. Now, here's the rub. It was the ministers who would have their toes stepped on. It was harder to be a vegetarian as a minister than it was as a church member, because as a minister you were constantly traveling. And, and, you know, it was more challenging back in the day anyhow, right? They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have blenders. How do you cook without a blender? <laughs> you know? Anyhow, <coughs> it's funny what Kellogg said. I, I think it's funny. I laughed. It was probably not productive, though. If that's the reason, and I can't guarantee it, but if that's the reason, you know, it's a shame because what he said in 1893 was very important, and nobody even knew about it for the next 120 years to speak of. What did he say in 1893? He said that good works are important. He quoted a lot of scripture. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. He said... All I want to show in this meeting is that good works should be a part of the Christian life. Now, there's an interesting little twist in this one. Notice on the third line there, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. But then on line five, it talks about giving it away, willing to share. How can you enjoy what God gives you if you give it away? That's how you enjoy it. <laughs> it is more blessed to give than to receive, and that's been so heavily scientifically documented. It's ridiculous. Give it away, and the Lord will give you more. Or not. You know, he's open-minded. He does, he does different things. Whatever you need is what he's going to, to do. Okay? Well, more Bible. I was surprised how many Bible verses that we're talking about good works. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, that those who believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs. I like that. Remember those appositive constructions set off with commas? Okay, This is kind of saying that the good works we're talking about here are those urgent needs. That's a, that's a helpful you know, kind of a half definition that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. In Corinthians, Paul exhorts us, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And Peter tells us he was an example that we should follow his steps. 
In Acts, Peter tells us that Christ went about doing good. It is evident then that if we are Christ servants, if we follow Christ, we must also go about doing good. We are not to wait for the opportunities for doing good to come to us, but we must go about doing good, seeking opportunities to do good, to help the needy, to bless and comfort the sorrowing, to uplift the fallen. We must search them out, not wait for them to hunt us up and move us to action by their appeals. We are not to be narrow in our charities, for Paul says to us, do good to all men. It is true, he adds, especially unto those who are of the household of the faith. But this does not excuse us from doing good to those who are not of the household of the faith, for he says, all men. And certainly we cannot hide behind this apology, for we have not been good even to those belonging to the household. Who is he talking about? Who had they not been good to? The orphans. <laughs> and the aged ministers. Kellogg's original motion was to have an orphanage combined with, this is like so cutting edge, an orphanage combined with carefully selected retirement opportunities for aged ministers who had worked all their life and had not accumulated money. And the church had a duty to care for them. For years and years, we've been well able to furnish a home for the aged, the infirm, the homeless, for poor widows, worn-out ministers, aged pilgrims, helpless children, members of our denomination, old pioneers in the cause who gave liberally of their property in the early days when their work was just beginning, and whose faith in the truths which we profess has led them to put all their earnings into the cause instead of hoarding up a competency for themselves. Stop. What is a competency? It's a retirement fund. Yeah, that's, the, that's old English for retirement fund. Well, okay, not really that old, but you know, it's 100 plus years ago. That, that's, that, that was a competent. It was, I have competent funds for the rest of my life. I'm good. They didn't do that. All these worthy and deserving ones who appeal to us on fraternal as well as humanitarian grounds we have neglected in a manner which has become a denominational disgrace. Okay, preach it, brother. <clears throat> well, he gave several sermons just trying to establish this point. What else could he do? Well, he could quote some Ellen White. Let's try that. Now, the next few slides, if it's in red, that's Ellen White, Kellogg quoting Ellen White, right? We have set ourselves up on a high pinnacle, and we said, we are God's special people. Our cause is the Lord's cause, and we talk about ourselves as being the peculiar people. And yet we are not doing as much Christian work, and Christian work of a very important character, as other denominations are doing. Again, quoting Ellen White, it is right that more should be expected of us than of others. Now, the question is, whether Seventh-day Adventists are going to lead in this work or is it going to be left for someone else to do. The Lord has given us here a very precious work to do. It is not the whole of the Third Angel's message, but it is a part of it. You read in Isaiah 58 how we can make our light shine. If thou draw out the soul of the hungry, satisfy the afflicted soul, and then light shall rise in obscurity, thy darkness shall be as the noonday. First time he mentioned Isaiah 58. Quoting Ellen White, when the advocates of the law of God plant their feet firmly upon its principles, living out in their daily lives the spirit of the commandments and exercise true benevolence to men, then will they have power to move the world. Kellogg says, we shall never have the moral power to move the world. We shall never see the loud cry, nor make the third angel's message go to any great extent. We will never see it go, as so as to move the world at least, until we carry out these truths in our daily lives. We cannot get moral power to move the world until we get where we will do what the scriptures and the testimonies say we must do. We have not done it yet. We have waited for outside people to come in and build our orphan's home. The Lord may be ready to start the loud cry, but we are not ready. We have not done our part, and the Lord is waiting for us to do something in the direction of good works. 
If we want the loud cry to begin, brethren, that is the place where it's going to begin. The loud cry is going to begin with our doing the things that the Lord in this chapter says come before the loud cry. So he says we must draw out our soul to hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. He says if we will do this, our light will shine. What Dr. Kellogg was saying sounded really strange to his audience. To many in the audience that day, the, the work of the church was a matter of spreading doctrine. From that perspective, all this medical missionary stuff was just like a monkey wrench in the gears. It's going to cost money, it's going to take time. Our job is to preach the three angels' message. But Kellogg was right. Notice how Ellen White summed some things up. Uh, right here, this is Ellen White, actually, even though it's not in red because Kellogg's not quoting, right? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation when it is interwoven with a practical life, when it is lived in practice. The union of Christ-like work for the body and Christ-like work for the soul is the true interpretation of the gospel. Remember your articles, a and the? This is the true interpretation, not a true interpretation. It's not like one of 24. This is the one. The union of Christ-like work for the body, Christ-like work for the soul. You want to do the gospel? That's how you do it. Let's go on. <clears throat> Kellogg, if the loud cry has, begun by, has been begun by our people, it must be because they have just begun to do a little in the way of letting our light shine. But we've done so little in that way that it seems to me that before the loud cry will make any great noise in the world, we will have to let our light shine a great deal brighter than we have ever yet done because the works come first. The light must shine through these good works before we can be called the repairers of the breach and the restorers of the paths of dwelling. For that promise comes after all of these conditions, you see. I think this is perhaps about as close as Kellogg came to nailing it on the head right here. He's not implying doubt of Ellen White. He was her strongest supporter in Battle Creek. I wish he'd phrase this a little bit differently. I, I would, you know, Ellen White said in November, the loud cry has begun. He says, if the loud cry has begun. That makes it sound like he's, he's questioning. That's, that's not his intent, I don't believe. But it had only begun. She didn't say it was going at full speed or full tilt or full volume. We would never have known the loud cry had begun if it weren't for her statement. It certainly was not on the front page of the New York Times. It's going to have to be someday. <laughs> right? So the loud cry had only barely begun. And I would argue that Kellogg was right. It was because we have just begun to do a little in the way of letting our light shine. And Dr. Kellogg introduced, I, I, you know, I'm sure I'd read this verse before. But this one just, just kind of, bam, slapped me up alongside the head. Every time, you know, every now and then you need that. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. And he will pay back what he has given. Notice the capitalization. He, capital H, will pay back what he, little h, has given. Can you trust that capital H right there? Remember what Kellogg said? I do not believe we have any right to accumulate money. I think as long as we are well and have the blessing of the Lord upon our work, it is our duty to spend what we earn in God's work. 
I do not believe that any man in this age has the right to accumulate money. What I see Kellogg doing in all of this is simply challenging the church to take Jones and Wagner's theology seriously. They presented a message that says, Christ is sufficient. He's all you need. And Kellogg said, really? Cool. Let's go do stuff then. Righteousness is doing the right thing at the right time, Eli tells us. Helping and healing people, Isaiah 58, that is the righteousness by faith. It's set forth in the chapter of Isaiah 58. Kellogg just simply said, let's do it. Let's go ahead. Now, he got a lot of flack. It's one of the sad aspects of the story. He got an awful lot of flack for a variety of reasons, some of his own doing and his own mistake. Let's go back and look at Ellen White's statement about the loud cry. Notice this here. The time of test is just upon us. For the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning Redeemer. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth. It's just the beginning. 1892, nothing, nothing that profound had happened yet. We'd gotten started. It was the beginning. And notice... Well, okay, yeah, there's, there's the beginning. Notice one more word. She never said... Oops, 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 I'm sorry. That's not the word I want you to... This is a great statement, though. I just forgot that was coming up here. We shall see the medical missionary work broadening and deepening at every point of its progress until the whole earth is covered as the waters cover the sea. The glory shall fill the whole earth. Quoting from Habakkuk and Isaiah, you know, the glory of the Lord, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's to be done through medical mission. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. Remember yesterday? <laughs> the whole purpose of Jesus' mission was the revelation of the character of the Father. And the only way he could do it was that combined ministry of preaching and healing. If that's the only way he could do it, seriously? You think you can find a different way? I'm guessing you can't. <laughs> Take a hint from the one guy who knows how to get the job done. He gave us his work to do. Let's pick it up and do it. He promised, if you have pity on the poor, you lend to the Lord. Now what happens, I have a young man right here. Let's just pretend that I am poverty stricken and he is overabounding in wealth. And so I come to you, what's your name? Anthony. Anthony. So I come to Anthony and I say, Anthony, I'm in a bind. Can I borrow a hundred bucks? And you would say, what a nice guy. I just knew it. He just looked like a nice guy right there. You know? He would lend me a hundred dollars. Now what has changed in our relationship? I now, I owe him a hundred dollars. When we lend to the Lord, he owes us. God wants that work to go forward so badly that he will go into debt to do it. <laughs> wow. 
Now, the one more word. Ellen White never said that the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the proclamation of the righteousness of Christ. She never said that. It began in the revelation. Now, there's a proclamation that goes with the revelation. Don't leave that off. That's kind of the problem that Kellogg got into in later years. The proclamation is the explanation of the revelation. And proclamation without revelation is imagination. And that's where we've been for the last hundred years. Okay, almost done. God's purpose in committing to men and women the mission that he committed to Christ, same job, is to disentangle his followers from all worldly policy and to give them a work identical with the work that Christ did. Identical, you will note, is a very strong word. What, 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 what's this worldly policy thing? I don't know. But here's what I can tell you. If it prevents you from taking up the work identical with Christ, it, that's a worldly policy. You need to get disentangled. Let us remember that it's not by word and precept alone that we are to reveal Christ's character. Our works must bear witness to the indwelling presence in the heart. His disposition, his kindness, his compassion manifested in our actions will inspire hope in the minds and hearts of the most hopeless. Thus, in act as well as in word, we shall reveal to the world the character of the unseen. I think this is a big deal. I want to tell you, that when the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. What kind of word is worst? Any grammarians? It's a superlative. Superlatives are a special category of which part of speech? Adjectives. There we go. English grammar is not yet entirely died out. Okay. Superlatives go as far as you can go in whatever direction you're going. Okay? You've got something that's big, you've got something that's bigger, and then this is the biggest. You've got something that's bad, you've got something that's worse, and then you've got the worst evil. Ellen White was not prone to hyperbole. Another English word there. She didn't exaggerate much. Pretty well called it straight down the line. I think we've been there for about the last, eh, you know, what, 120 years? Conscientiously, wholeheartedly, and I believe the Lord accepts us in our ignorance at times, doing what we thought would result in the second coming without understanding that it was simply categorically incompetent. That's not to say that people weren't saved. It's not to say that everybody that's been lost, and you know, it's not to say that we've been under the condemnation of God and under his curse. You no, know, we have self-inflicted the worst evil on ourselves. But you know, the Israelites spent 40 years wandering around the wilderness where they were not supposed to be, and God kept feeding them. His mercy endures forever. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Christ's ministers, and I would like to extend that to the layman. Come on, let's kick it up a notch here, people. We don't have to be an ordained minister to take upon ourselves the task of ministering. 
Christ's ministers must stand in an altogether different position. They must be evangelists. They must be medical missionaries. They must take hold of the work intelligently, but it's of no use for them to think that they can do this while they drop the work which God has said should be connected with the gospel. If they drop out the medical missionary work, they need not think they can carry forward their work successfully. They have only half the necessary facilities. You don't have that quarter-inch socket drive. You can't get the oil pan off the bottom. Nah, it's probably bigger than a quarter-inch. But if you don't have the right tool, <laughs> you can't get the oil pan down. How are you going to change that oil filter? Well, not the filter. The pump. There we go. How are you going to change the oil pump? You know, If you can't get where you need to get, you can't do the work you need to do. And so, Dr. Kellogg assisted the Lord's work with the start of the loud cry. I believe that. That answers questions that people have wrestled with for 60 years. Robert Wheland was a Shirtail relative of mine. He spent 60 years trying to find the theology that Jones and Wagner used to start the loud cry. And I, used, I had talks with him a couple of times. This is Elder Wheeland. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's theology. I said, really, Dave? You don't think it's theology? No, I think it's something else. Well, what do you think it is, Dave? I said, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just, I just, I don't find the theological answer. He was a good-hearted guy. He said, you know, Dave, it's a fascinating idea. If you come up with something, you let me know sometime. In the meantime, I'm going to keep working on the theology. That's all I got. Dr. Kellogg's sermons came into my hands two months after Elder Whelan died. I would have loved to share that with him. But when I read what Dr. Kellogg had to say, two months after the loud cry had begun, I said, what a piece of genius work this is. Why has this been moldering on the shelves for the last 120 years? It's insane. So I commend to you the work of Christ because we are given an identical work. I commend to you some familiarity with Dr. Kellogg's efforts to implement it. It's worth studying that history. You'll find a blessing in it. I commend to you the privilege of lending to the Lord. Because you'll be repaid. Let's kneel for prayer. Father, we, uh, we have been brought face to face with a task that's larger than we are. <laughs> with tools that are more powerful than we are. With challenges that look daunting. And yet we see the, uh, the shining of your promise surrounding them and behind them and coming through and around. And Lord, we want to have our thinking rewired. We want to understand the nature and the character of God that we might manifest it to the world around us, that we might trust that we might go forward doing righteous deeds in full and complete confidence in our Savior and his willingness to sustain and to keep us 
and not to be like Lucifer. We lost trust in God's wisdom and love. May that trust be restored full force in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.